Yesterday, South Korean Trade Ministry decided to remove Japan from its trusted trading partners, placing Japan in a newly created bracket called CAD-2 between the two existing groups. This new category is for a country that participates in the four international agreements but operates an export control system that violates international norms, making the approval process takes about 15 days. For further analysis, we're joined by Troy Stangaron, a senior director and fellow at the Korea Economic Institute for, um, of America. Uh, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Did I say your name right, Stangaron? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> um, first of all, what do you make of the South Korean government's tit-for-tat decision to remove Japan from the top tier, tier on its list of trusted trade partners in place? Uh, the newly created category uh, called uh, CA-2, right? Rather symbolic gesture, do you think? I think at this point it's a little early to tell. Um, part of this is, you know, even in the case of Japan's own decision to remove South Korea from the white list, you know, we're in a situation to where we're still trying to see how all of these implementations will play out. Um, on one level, Japan, for example, has said that they will not interfere with commercial trade and that their actions will not disrupt supply uh, chains in Southeast Asia. So on the one hand, you know, be it either how South Korea implements its new category or how Japan does, there may not be much impact to trade. However, at the same time, we also know that there could be significant impact if, for example, in Japan's case, which is much more stringent in the sense of that approval could take up to 90 days if you're seeing either delays or goods get blocked. So I think there could be significant impact, but it all depends on how this ends up being implemented. I see. Uh, what do you think lies at the heart of Japanese trade pressure in South Korea that all began early next month? Well, last month, actually. Yeah. yeah, at the beginning of July. And, you know, if you look at some of the comments from either Prime Minister Abe himself at the time or Chief Cabinet Secretary Sugua, they suggest that this isn't simply about um, export control issues with South Korea. Um, there's a couple reasons. One, if you look at a comment from Prime Minister Abe, uh, he says that basically, you know, South Korea violated international law on uh, it's the Supreme Court decision on forced labor, and so therefore we must assume that they have violated the law on export controls. Um, one, those things don't necessarily go together, but they suggest that there's something deeper at play in Japan's thoughts. Now, more recently, Japan has tried and government officials to back off of these types of statements, but I think it's clear, given that Japan hasn't been very forthcoming on what the specific concerns they have about South Korea's export control system are, that there has to be something else deeper at play here, and it's most likely the Supreme Court decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we heard also reports that uh, uh, Shinzo Abe's office asked multiple government agencies to come up with ways to apply pressure on South Korea from uh, early this year. Now, in the article, I, I think you wrote that in your article um, uh, to uh, Diplomat, the, uh, you also wrote, you estimated a potential financial loss for Japanese companies if they had to compensate uh, South Korean forced labor victims. Do you think it's about just uh, financial damage? I don't think it's just about financial damage. Um, one of the points that I was trying to make in the article was that if this was clearly only about the financial damage, the steps that Japan are taking 
is not proportional to what that type of damage could be. Right now, there's only about 1,300 cases in the court system. Some of them have been resolved, but the majority of those have not. Even if you were to take and basically go through and assume that everyone will get the highest award that so far has been given out, you're probably talking about Japanese companies being liable for $175 million. Now, there are potentially other people who could file cases, and these numbers could grow, but the actual potential damages right now are fairly low to where if Japan were to restrict, for example, Samsung's access or SK Hynix or some other firms to access to certain key chemicals, the damages would be much more significant. So I think this is really about sending a signal to South Korea about Japan's displeasure over the Supreme Court decision and trying to remind South Korea that you know they hold key export items. Um, because if this was really simply about trying to take and do, as the analogy I use, a sort of a WTO uh, retaliation case, this would go well beyond that. Mm-hmm. Uh, given that, then, how do you assess the Tokyo's claim the decision is about national security concerns? Uh, has that been justified? I don't think so. Um, you know, if you look at other reporting, even like the New York Times, they'll point out that if you push the Japanese on, well, can you tell us what these cases were or something, um, it's very difficult. Um, there's a Nikkei Asian Review story that suggests that um, despite the idea that's been floated that some of these um, export items have been sent to North Korea, that that's not actually the case, that there has been some slippage on the South Korean side, but it's been primarily, it seems like, maybe to countries in the Middle East. Um, so you have sort of these ideas that get floated or said, but that don't seem to have much substance behind them. Mm-hmm. And on another level, you would think, you know, if there is a real national security concern here, the South Korean and the Japanese electronics markets that we've seen are very integrated to each other and very important to each other. You would think that rather than taking and trying to cut off access and then give vague references, that the Japanese government would want to work cooperatively with the South Korean government to fix any you know flaws that it saw in the export control system. So it doesn't seem as though this is really national security based. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about what transpired uh, afterwards. Uh, given the reciprocal move that Seoul made, and also the the voluntary boycott movements from the public, do you think that Tokyo has miscalculated Seoul's reactions a bit? I think so. If there was ever a thought in Tokyo that this was going to be seen simply as a technical move, clearly that was miscalculated. If this was definitely on their side a suggestion of trying to pressure South Korea, to think that you know South Korea wouldn't push back also seems a miscalculation. I think anyone who's sort of seen the ups and downs of the relationship, even just you know over the last few years, you know would seem to have realized that you know this would not go over well. Um, in essence, you know it's potentially targeting the largest export market for the South Korean economy, and so. Anytime you're in a situation like that, you know, clearly I think your instinct is going to be to push back and also to point out why those measures perhaps aren't justified. So I do think that Tokyo has miscalculated on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, last week, Tokyo has granted the export a batch of photoresist for extreme ultraviolet chip-making technology, which is one of the key uh, items that Tokyo placed export restriction last month. Uh, do, th- do you see this as a softening gesture or a decision to, let's say, uh, increase unpredictability? My 
initial reaction to this, and I think this probably still holds, is that you know, right now the Japanese government was in a position to where it didn't seem as though its justification on national security was going to hold internationally. There were concerns about how this would impact supply lines on the electronic side, and in essence, the Japanese government had come out and said that this won't interrupt trade. And so I think they needed to take and try to demonstrate how this won't. But at this point, this is more symbolic than any, you know, basically sign of a pattern. I think if we start seeing more export licenses issued on a fairly quick basis, then we'll kind of see that, you know, Japan's words that this won't interrupt commercial trade are perhaps true. But in the absence of seeing more licenses issued and on a more regularized basis, I think at this point this is more symbolic than anything else. Mm -hmm. uh, j this one just being the one case of uh, permission granted, so it's hard to gauge what the overall message is at this point. Um, now, yeah. Washington's stance on the trade conflict between South Korea and Japan it still remains quite uh, ambiguous uh, to, to uh, describe it the best. Uh, Washington has been only clear about the importance of Jisomia. So, can you elaborate on Washington's position? Uh, I think Washington was caught a little bit off guard on this, and it's still trying to calibrate things. But we're also at a point to where, if you think about the timing of this, President Trump had only probably two or three weeks beforehand met with uh, Chairman Kim from North Korea. There was this thought that negotiations might restart. And so I think, you know, Washington is really focused right now on the North Korea question. And a key component of that is ensuring that you have good cooperation between Japan and South Korea on the security side. And so I think part of that focus is really this focus on trying to, you know, maybe grasp this one opportunity we didn't think we might have before of trying to see if we can get North Korea to denuclearize. So I think that's really where the focus comes in. On the economic side, I think, you know, over time, this is something that Washington is going to have to put more focus on because depending on how Japan implements these new measures, you know, one of the key security concerns for Washington has been the development of secure 5G networks around the world. You know, we've seen Ambassador Harris talk about this, you know, in South Korea. And so if Japan were to take and start restricting parts that Samsung needed to take and make 5G equipment because they're one of the key producers, then that starts, you know, basically interacting with Washington's own national security interests. And so I think, you know, right now North Korea is the key concern, but I do think that on the economic side, you know, there may be broader concerns that Washington will have as this uh, situation goes forward if we don't see more regularized trade. So from your standpoint, how do you think this will unfold? I mean, you seem to be saying that the, the Washington's action is partly dependent upon what happens with North Korea. But in the meanwhile, uh, Tokyo and Seoul will uh, continue its squabble. What, what would change the course um, from your vantage point? Uh, how does that unfold in the future? There's a couple different ways this could go. You know, in an ideal world, and, you know, unfortunately we don't live in ideal worlds, uh, Japan would be more forthcoming about what its export control concerns were. In that circumstance, South Korea could then, you know, assuming that these concerns were seen as justifiable, uh, you know, make remedial actions, and then Japan would restore South Korea to the white list, and we'd all sort of move beyond this. Now, that, of course, presupposes that, you know, Japan is being frank and that this really isn't about another issue. If it's about another issue, 
I think this becomes more difficult to solve, and that's the type of situation to where, you know, Washington won't be able to and shouldn't try to solve the historical issues because ultimately you need a resolution that the two sides come to and can agree on on, the, on their own. But what Washington can do is try to work to encourage as much cooperation between the two sides and create an environment to where we basically talk to our two allies and say, well, we're not going to make a judgment on this issue. We want to ensure you're cooperating on a wide range of issues. And in that context, then perhaps you could take and create a more productive uh, front on the economic side as well. And so, you know, I think those types of things need to happen, either, you know, Washington talking to Seoul and Tokyo about greater cooperation in other areas to try and encourage them to not, you know, go too far down a path they don't want to go, or for Japan to be more forthcoming about what its real concerns are, because without knowing what Japan's real concerns are, it's hard for anyone to address them. As you mentioned, it seems like there are a lot of moving pieces. It's economic issues, but also political issues involved, uh, and also on the side of North Korea and the relationship with uh, Donald Trump uh, between Kim and uh, Donald Trump is another uh, situation that will change your... um, It's not a make-or-break-way situation, but it'll change change the course. Well, uh, thank you for your analysis today, Mr. Uh, Stangaron. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, that was Mr. Troy Stangaron, Senior Director at the Korea Economic Institute of America.